This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Gary Taylor. Hello and welcome to the latest Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Hope you are well. So, as some of you may know, the AMHT hold an annual lecture, an annual event in January, namely the Walter Hayes Memorial Lecture. And we're delighted this year to have Marek Reitman as the guest speaker this time. So it seems appropriate, uh, and we are recording this podcast here at the Aston Martin Heritage Museum, the barn, and we thought it'd be appropriate uh, this time to remind ourselves and you as to who was Walter Hayes. Some of you may know him as being chairman of Aston Martin. Uh, Some of you may know him as the driving force behind the DB7, which some suggest saved the company. Some may think of Formula Ford, Formula One and so on. But we want to know something more about the person himself and who better to invite to this podcast to remember Walter than his son, uh, Richard Hayes, who is now a council member of the AMHT. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and thank you to the Trust too. So Richard, where do you think we should start to, what should we say, can we sum up Walter Hayes uh, straight away before we get into the detail? Yes, I think... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's lovely to have the opportunity to talk about him. Personally, um, he had quite a lot of press coverage and did a number of interviews, but it, they were never about him, really. <clears throat> he always was representing a company or a project. And um, so what I've done is I've collected some insight into him from various interesting people who worked with him, And the insight comes from letters, uh, comments in books, or press cuttings. And um, the people I'm going to uh, reference are, um, in alphabetical order, Ian Callum, Colin Chapman, Keith Duckworth, Emerson Fittipaldi, Henry Ford II, R.J. Miller, Max Mosley, Red Poling, the Duke of Richmond, Sir Jackie Stewart, Ken Tyrrell, and the Duke of Windsor. So it gives you a sense of what an eclectic life he had. These were all um, people he met through his work, but who he became close to, I think, because they, they liked each other and it was an amusing experience to do things together. And together they made some very important things happen. So <clears throat> what I would say firstly was that he, there were really three parts to his working life. He began as a journalist on Fleet Street, and then he moved into the car world, uh, joining Ford and then retiring from Ford and, and being resurrected to, to work with Aston Martin and then to become chairman. And um, the interesting thing was that he was not from a family that was in any way automotive. Um, and no one seems to quite know how it was that he developed such a good sense of touch for car projects. I think you said earlier on that his parents, uh, they, they were partly involved in journalism, but it was more on the printing side of things. Yes, they were. Um, his father was, uh, worked as a printer on Fleet Street, and I think that's where his interest developed. But his interest, um, although he was interested in printing, and when we were... Young, he bought us, I think it was called an Adana, was a, a printing press. And it came with blocks of letters and it had a circular disc that you put thick ink on and rollers went up and down. And so we printed off letterhead 
Um, it took us a few weeks to get the to to, to set the, le- the the blocking. I think it's called right. But it, so that was interesting to him. But he was really a writer, um, a journalist. But he was really self-taught. Um, anyway, so what's uh, he always seems to have risen to the top, um, and actually uh, he became in 1956 the youngest ever editor of a national British newspaper, which was the Sunday Dispatch. And he held that record for 38 years um, until uh, Piers Morgan was appointed editor of the News of the World in 1994. Um, On the automotive side, what was unusual about him was that he played leading roles in both road and racing car projects. And um, many of them were of significant consequence and success. And he was very effective both in changing perceptions of companies and in fortifying them and improving their their financial state, really. Um, I I think also, um, to give a sense of his personal characteristics... um, based on you know, my knowledge of him and what close friends or colleagues had said, um, the, the one thing that really stood out was he was very well known for his being very good at giving advice. He had a very good way of thinking and explaining and encouraging people. And um, I have examples uh, to give later from the Duke of Richmond and a particularly interesting one from Max Mosley. Um, so he had a very creative mind. and um, Do you think many people, we say he's good at giving advice, so people went to him to, to seek counsel? Yes, exactly. Well, the, th- the thing was that, you know, by the, by, the, by, the mid, by the late 60s, you know, he'd been behind a total transformation of Ford's image and had helped drive support for more sophisticated and better engineering in the road cars. Um, he was helpful to a lot of people. He, um, he supported lots of teams, lots of drivers in different ways. He offered advice um, to a very young Emerson Fittipaldi. I have the most wonderful set of uh, letters here I'm going to quote from. And so he had a reputation as he didn't really have an axe to grind. You could go along, you could discuss things with him. It would be in confidence. He would quite probably have a good constructive idea. And if he could help you with it, he would. Mm. Um, uh, uh, one example, um, to jump ahead slightly, is that in 1993, um, Charles March, then Lord March, uh, had this idea about having a hill climb. And he, um, he was suggested to him that he should go and talk to Walter because he had, you know, knew a lot of people and had a lot of experience in different things. Not in hill climbs, but, but um, anyway. So he went to see Walter and that time he was chairman of Aston Martin and he said to the Duke, um, I think it's a terrific idea. And I would like to offer you all the support I can, but I can't um, offer you too much money. However, I can lend you a DB7, and um, you can 
now go to Bugatti and tell them that you went, started with A, you went to Aston Martin, Aston Martin gave you some money, they gave you a car to display, and, you know, that's, let's get the ball rolling that way. And um, the interesting thing was, that, I mean, the Festival of Speed is the most wonderful event. <clears throat> you see the most amazing cars and drivers yes. from the past. Um, I was kind of quite used in my youth to meeting famous Formula One drivers, world champions. So one of the drivers I was most amazed and impressed to see at, at Guru was Junior Johnson, who was one of the founders of NASCAR. Yes. But anyway, one of the most celebrated um, justifiably uh, elements of the festival speed is the, the central display that they have outside Goodwood House, which is, gets ever more dramatic and wonderful. Um, but what's interesting was the very first central display was actually a DB7 on the podium. So, um, so th- that... And, and because I think, I think the DB7 had just been announced at that time as well, wasn't it? Yes. It, it th- seemed very timely to have that. I yeah, well, there, that. Was, there was a model there. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, Father, when he offered advice, would back it up with something. But if it also helped him and his work and what he was doing, if it was mutually beneficial, um, he would suggest it. Um, it wasn't to exploit it, it was to support it. Yeah. And um, I actually had a very nice email um, from the Duke when my mother died, which I can quote from um, with the Duke's permission, um, if I can find it in my notes here. But he, um, well, it'll turn up later and then I'll, I'll read from it. But so advice was a big, one of the reasons his reputation spread. Um, because because the Duke could have could have gone to anybody really, but it's rather poignant that he went to Walter first of all to say, "I've got this idea. What what do you think about it?" Yes. Well, I mean, I'm sure he spoke to other people. He had a good growing team at Goodwood, yeah. and they are a very bright bunch. But I think um, Charles was, you know, look look at what a role he performs now for the automotive road and racing world. But at that time, he was an outsider, so. Um, also was good, but I'm sure he spoke to other people as well. It's rather interesting you've put down, uh, I've got a list here of, it, of his personal characteristics. Um, one of them is the, the soundness of his advice, um, mm. his creative mind and, and lateral thinking. I think one of, one of the things that comes to mind, uh, that's two out of five, we'll come on to the others later, was that I seem to remember somebody saying, you'd often find Walter be in his office looking out the window w- with his pipe and he and, and he would be thinking uh thinking the problem through he, he always seemed fairly relaxed uh relaxed gentleman yes yes there was uh, somebody mentioned going to see him in his office when he was based in dearborn and he was sort of leaning back in his chair with his feet on the desk and his pipe was burning away and um he, he did like to take time to think and reflect, and the pipe um, helped him. Um, there's, I have a picture uh, of him in his Fleet Street days at an editorial meeting, and his pipe was there with him, and that would have been in his early 30s. And there's um, a very funny scene. Uh, Ford released a short documentary in about 68, called Nine Days in Summer, which was about the development of the DFE engine. <clears throat> and there's a meeting in the boardroom with, I think, Colin Chapman, Keith Duckworth, and my father. 
and they're talking and while while he's talking my father lights his pipe and fills the room with smoke and um you know that was okay in those days and uh it must have been a bit hard to see but Colin Chapman ignores it I think they were used to it but it did seem to be a tool to help him relax and to help him think yes it seemed to be his prop. I, think, I remember you saying when we were talking about before, before the podcast, I think he had his pipe. Uh, he took it to the Le Mans pit, uh, pits and uh, lit it up there. And uh, uh, it was, he, I think he was allowed to get away with it. Yes, we, we, went, we had a fantastic... We went to the, uh, a test weekend um, with John Wire when he, had, he was running Gulf Mirage and he had two cars. One had a, the, duck, the DFE... Cosworth Ford, and the other had a Westlake V12, and they were comparing the engines with Harden Ganley driving the Cosworth and Derek Bell driving the V12. And we had a wonderful... We stayed in the famous hotel at La Chartre, which had been the Aston Martin base, and then John Wire Wy- used to go back there. And, um, yeah, there was a moment when, um, you know, Walter was standing sort of... It, not that close to the car, but he just started thinking and he got his pipe out and lit it. And um, I could see one of the mechanics was quite appalled and and wanted to do and say something, but wasn't sure he should. Um, but I think uh, Walter came to his senses pretty quickly and put it out, so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any drama. Um, a couple of other characteristics I've listed. He had great drive and determination. He really liked to have an idea, think it through, and then make it happen. Um, and um, I think he had a very high success rate. One of his secrets was that he was very happy to work with the best people he could find. And um, he liked to discuss things. He liked to learn he liked people's input. He liked to find who was good and give them an opportunity. Um, there's a very interesting book by Graham Robson about the Ford Cortina, Capri, and Corsair. And he talks a lot about Ford in the early 60s, and there was a racing program that wasn't very structured or organized. And um, there were various people <clears throat> who wanted to get Ford more into saloon car racing. They wanted to have what they learned in saloon car racing applied to road cars. And um, Father wasn't the first person to, um, to recognize this, as, but he was in a position, he had the authority and the persuasiveness to make it happen. Mm. Um, so, you know, when he was talking to Colin Chapman about... Well, they had he had met Chapman in the 50s when he made him the motoring editor of the Sunday Dispatch, and they wrote over 38 articles together. Um, and then when, when Walter went to Ford, <clears throat> there was Colin, such a big deal in racing, and it occurred to Walter that, uh, you know, Ford and Lotus together could do amazing things. And actually, the first thing, which I think was Walter's suggestion, was the Lotus Cortina, and he knew that Duckworth and Chapman had been working on the Angler engine because that was very, you know, had great possibilities for development. And now there was the Cortina, which was replacing the Angler. So he was happy to go find the right people, talk to them. Um, 
find out what they needed, find out what they wanted, and then facilitate it. <clears throat> and I think Chapman had been connected with racing and Ford earlier through the Indy 500 stuff that he was doing with Jim Clark. Um, and it seems that he said to Walter that he really wanted to do a Formula One engine, and he had Chapman had already suggested this to Ford, but he hadn't got anywhere with them. And, um, and Walter said, well, let's see what I can do. And, and together they put together what they needed, and of course it happened. So um, that was his drive and determination, and also um, finding good people to work with. And also he was ambitious um, very much for the companies he worked for. Um, he wasn't personally ambitious. He, I mean, he was very well treated and paid and promoted and you know of course you know the ultimate experience was to be the chairman of Aston Martin and that's unusual because you know he wasn't a product man he perfect by profession by training he wasn't a finance guy um, he was really a marketer and a communicator but he um, he brought he had these ideas, and then he would sort of press them into service. And I'm just about to read something very funny um, from a speech given by the Ford, soon to be Ford chairman at his retirement dinner in London. But, but Walter liked to really, um, once he had an idea, you know, if it was a bee in his bonnet, then he wasn't going to just... He was a talk of about. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then a couple of other characteristics. He was shrewd um he had a good independent mind but he was happy to talk and share and absorb ideas um and he was pragmatic and he would fight really fight for what he believed in um he really wanted to save aston martin and um ford bought into this they did buy a share of aston martin they did support the program they did offer funding but there was still many people at Ford who just couldn't understand the need to rescue a company that, that made so, so few cars. Um, there were various people at Jaguar who were bre whispering in Ford's ear not to, um, you know, that Jaguar should be the... Yeah, just to quietly, you know, dump it. And, um, and Father's pragmatism, he thought, right, well, I've worked with all these four people all these years. I've been in Detroit for four years. I know the Ford family, I know Bill Ford, the chairman, I know lots of top people, and he really lobbied. Um, he would, you know, work in Newport Pagnell, he would be, he would go home to Shepparton, um, and he would sit in his study with a typewriter and a fax machine and bang off letters, very blunt, very to the point, very insightful, and he would really put people on the spot, and he would uh, get, not hesitate to get on a plane and go to Dearborn. Um, and there was one time he was told that Alex Trotman, the chairman, um, was under pressure to abandon the DB7 project. And um, so Walter flew to Dearborn, went to Trotman's office, walked in and said, do you want to be the British chairman of Ford who killed Aston Martin. And Trotman said, well, absolutely not. 
And Walter said, well, good. And so he, he was pragmatic. If he, if he needed to make people feel a bit awkward, if he had to be blunt, um, then he would. And um, the ultimate pragmatism I can refer to later was when he, he launched the DB7 at the Geneva Motor Show without Ford's approval. Yes. Yes. So we'll come back to that. Um, anyway, he, if you spoke to him, he, would, um, he did have some great stories to tell, but he wasn't the sort of person who would say, did I ever tell you about? You had to sort of ask. Although once you asked, then you know, out they came. Um, he tended to live in the present and the future. He, he wasn't um, interested in, in what he'd already done or what he'd been involved in. But it did lead to some wonderful conversations. Um, I went to the Indianapolis 500 once with him in about 1983, and we bumped into Colin Chapman in the pit lane before the race. And they were so happy to see each other. And it was great. Um, and, um, you know, not everybody around them seemed to realize who they were, but it really didn't matter. They had this very intense and terrific conversation and, and Mario Andretti was there and joined in. Um, so those kind of moments happened. Um, a lot of them happened at Goodwood, um, at the festival speed and at the track revival, um, which is, you know, a fantastic reunion of people and cars and all sorts of things. So um, he wrote, um, this is a a thought that occurred to me. Um, Graham Gould was the editor of a a biography of Jim Clark called Jim Clark Portrait of a Great Driver, which was published by Hamlin in 1968. And Walter contributed a chapter entitled A Gentle Guiding Hand. And in it, he said of Jimmy... I don't believe that he ever had a lesson in anything. I don't believe anyone ever taught him anything, and I believe that anything he did, he worked out for himself. And it occurred to me, I think the same could be said of Walter. Um, He was a big um, rugby and and cricket fan. He was a member of the MCC. Um, He was a slow bowler, and if you're kind, you'd say a number 10 batsman. Um, he loved the theatre, and he had actually, in his early days um, at the Dispatch, had been a theatre critic. Um, he'd also covered crime a little bit. And I asked him how this was, and he said the thing was that he was young and ambitious, and... Quite often there would be a Friday afternoon when everyone was preparing to go home, uh, the journalists, and a sub-editor would walk in and say, right, we need someone to go down to Hampton or we need someone to go to this play or we need someone to, um, to go to Shepperton. Uh, I think it was to interview uh, Lord Olivia Marilyn Monroe. And... and and Walter said, well, there were always people who were thinking about the weekend. So I made a point of always making myself available. And I think that was probably part of his rise. Um, so, staying with that, it's interesting. 
a tremendously busy man. Was he able to find time? Did he make time for his family, for yourself, for 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 personal hobbies? He um, he worked extraordinarily hard, and um, he. But I was born in 1957, and by the time I was 10, he was uh, working. He was director of. Uh, fall of Europe, and I think two years later he was made vice chairman. So he, wor- I mean, we lived in Isha, and he worked in in Brentwood, which was quite a drive. And he actually had a flat that he would stay at during the week. And then he was in Europe a lot. And um, as he started to work with Henry Ford um, in the mid and later sixties, he started to go to America a lot. So the, the truth is that um, he was a very loving uh, and amusing father and a very generous one, but he wasn't around very much. Um, I think he missed most of my birthdays because of the power. My birthday was is in October, and I think he missed many of the birthday parties of my childhood because of the Paris Motor Show. Um, he um, He did once... He never... I, I lived close to school. I used to ride a bike. Um, and I rode always. There was one marvellous time. He, um, his company road car was a GT40. Um, I should, I should well, at which uh, John Wire had... I think he made three or four of these road versions at um, Slough. And the car had an elongated tail, and they had put a sort of luggage compartment in it. It was very small. And I remember going to Slough to see the car with, with Walter, and I remember John Wire lifting the back of the car and showing him where his where a suitcase could go. But John said, but I really wouldn't put a suitcase in there. It will melt. <laughs> um, anyway, um, there was a, a, an infrequent treat because I went my school, we had lessons on Saturdays until lunchtime, and there was one day when when um, Walter said, "I'll come and get you in the GT40," and I was absolutely overjoyed. And um, and the exit, the entrance to the school was at the top of a little hill, and you could see the cars coming towards you from, you know, seven or eight hundred yards away. Um, but to my great disappointment, uh, Walter was late. And really, everybody had been picked up and everybody had gone. Oh, no. Uh, this is a true story. Um, I still remember the intense disappointment. And, and I was, had told a friend that my father was coming in a special car and the friend waited and waited and waited and started to not believe me. And then along came this GT40. And it just looked ridiculous because it was so low and flat and wide it it didn't look like a car and it was kind of it seemed to be a sort of low hovercraft that was traveling over the over the road um so he was a fantastic father but it occurred to me that i actually moved after university i went to live in new york and i worked um as an advertising copywriter for j walter thompson um and unexpectedly the year later um my father finally agreed to go and work in america he lived in Ann Arbor with my mother for three or four years, 
and I went to see them often, and he came to New York. And actually, that was the time when we really got to know each other, and and it was very interesting. He was great company. He had some amazing stories going on about Ford at the time, and and we carried on. Um, he moved back to England. I stayed in the States. Um, but we, you know, then there were fax machines, and he would write me regularly, very long, three or four page faxes, full of what was going on, full of stuff, full of business advice if I called him and asked for help. And um, so I was really well informed about all the uh, issues going on about as he worked his way into Aston Martin as things changed. I, I suspect those uh, those faxes, I think they were printed on thermal paper. I think they're long faded now. Yes. They? Yeah, one of the, I mean, I have a few serious regrets in my life. And, and one of them was these wonderful... Um, my office... Um, later on, I was on 57th Street, just between 5th and 6th Avenues. And, um, you know, every now and then office politics or weirdness would get. And, and I knew he was giving other people advice. So I, and I would call him or send a fax from the office. And then I would walk home. And I lived up on 76th Street. And I would, on the east side... And I would send him a fax and walk home. And when I got home, which would take 30 or 40 minutes, frequently there would be a two or three page fax hanging out of the machine. They were always very considered, very thoughtful, very sensible, sometimes not at all what you'd expect to read. And the the great tragedy is that I read them and then I threw them away. And I'm I'm really, I wish I could go back and, you know, but, but... that's how you you know you you lived your life minute by minute really so um anyway then there's one more thing on this sort of to describe him he he um he was very eclectic he wrote three books um in about 67 or 8 um he caught mumps and he was confined to bed for a month and he wrote uh, a book a, a children's book called Angelica the Bewitching Witch Um, so that was published and then um, later on when he was based in the States um, he and my mother Elizabeth lived in Ann Arbor and he had this big interest in antiquarian books and there was a library called the Clements Library that had a fantastic collection of antiquarian books and he heard about it, and he went along, and he met the people, and he became a trustee. And um, there was a woman whose name, I think, was Marion Carson, who had collected books and given some to the, um, to the library. And she and father got on very well. And she had um, the papers from a, a Nantucket whaler called Mayhew Folger, who who, ha, who was based in Nantucket, who had gone whaling off into the South Seas and they would disappear for months on end. And he had actually been sailing past Pitcairn Island, which had, was thought to be uninhabited, and he'd seen signs of life. And he'd, gone, he'd moored and gone into Pitcairn and discovered the mutine, some of the mutineers of the bounty. He actually met them. They told him the story, and they gave him, I think, a compass or a sextant that had belonged to Captain Blythe, 
and he sent this back to the Admiralty in England, and this was how the mutineers had been found. So she gave, um, she, Marion Carson agreed to give the papers to the Clements Library if Walter agreed to write the book, which he did, and that was published by the Clements Library. Um, and I've given a copy to the, the Heritage Trust. It's, it's in, in your amazing oh, files that's, that's somewhere. fantastic, yes. And then the, the third book he wrote, um, well, while Henry Ford was still alive, Lord Weidenfeld had um, dinner with him and Walter and asked Henry to write his autobiography, and it was agreed that Walter would write it. Um, Henry died in 1987, and when Walter retired in 1989, because he liked to be busy and he'd been looking forward to doing this, um, he wrote the book then, um, which was called um, Henry... Oh, I have it here. Henry, A Life of Henry Ford II, which was published by Grove and Weidenfeld. And um, I have some a couple of comments about that for later. So, anyway, just very quickly to give you a, a chronology. Um, so he was born on April the 12th, 1924. He died on Boxing Day in 2000. Um, in 1956, he was appointed editor of the Sunday Dispatch, in 1959, he was made associate editor of the Daily Mail. In 1961, he joined Ford of Britain as the director of public affairs. Uh, in 65, he joined the board of Ford of Britain. In 67, um, Ford set up Ford of Europe, and he became the vice president of public affairs for that. In 76, uh, he was made vice chairman. Um, he had worked and travelled a lot by then with, with Henry Ford, who asked him many times to go and work in the States. But um, I have an older brother and a younger sister, and um, he wanted to be based in England, and he wanted as much as he could to be an active father. and not So he, he agreed, when he did agree to go to the States, um, my brother... Um, had graduated and was, um, I was working in, in New York and, and my sister was at Durham University. So he went and he was the vice president of public affairs for Ford USA um, from 1980 to 1984. Then he returned to Europe to be the vice chairman until 89 when he retired. Uh, in 87, he had recommended to Henry Ford in a private meeting that Ford seriously think about buying Aston Martin. So when he retired from Ford, but he then um, kept, was started to be involved with Aston Martin at Ford's request. And in 1990, he joined the board of Ford. Um, in 91, he was made the Aston Martin Lagonda chairman. In 94, he retired from Aston Martin Lagonda. Um, he had wanted to drive a DB7 off the production line on his birthday and on his retirement, um, but there had been delays, so he missed that by six weeks. But he was nonetheless um, so happy that the car was was going into production. Um, and when he retired from Aston Martin Lagonda, um, he was appointed uh, life president 
And then four years later, the Aston Martin Heritage Trust was established and um, he was appointed the first chairman of that. Um, and then also he was a trustee of the National Motor Museum at Bewley. He chaired the Stowe Garden Appeal. And, um, and th this is an interesting example of how his mind worked. Um, he was made chairman of something called the Redundant Churches Fund, which existed to maintain uh, redundant churches. Redundant churches, yes. And um, the first thing he did was change the name because he felt it was very negative. So he changed it from Redundant Churches Fund to the Churches Conservation Trust. And he was a real breath of fresh air. Um, you know, there was nobody else who'd been involved in Fallen One and Aston Martin involved in that trust. And um, I have some uh, lovely comments um, that were part of a letter written by the chairman who replaced him to the Times after his death. Um, so I, I would... Um, everybody who, who worked with him, or many people, found him very effective and actually quite fun or challenging in different ways. And um, I do have a two or three things I'd like to read. Um, <clears throat> so the first one is... <clears throat> from the speech given at his retirement party from Ford in the Dorchester, London, in March 1989. Um, at that point, uh, Red Poling was vice chairman, and uh, he suddenly became chairman of Ford. At that time, I mean, obviously, Ford was a very big deal, a very serious business, and everybody was slightly dour. They were all quite serious, earnest American businessmen. And... Why, why, why was he retiring from Ford? Was, did he reach a, an age threshold? Yes. Yes, was yeah. that the, uh... He was 65. Right. And there was nothing he could do about it. Okay. That was it. That was it. That's how yeah. it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Red Poling um, gave a, a fantastic and humorous and insightful speech, and I've just got a few paragraphs. <clears throat> he said... Ford was totally unprepared for Walter. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> he did, however, have interesting friends and associates from his press days, notably a racing car engineer turned motorsports racer named Colin Chapman. That friendship led to the Cosworth engine. The rest is racing history and the foundation of Ford's association with the concept of total performance. Now, this is just one of the interesting developments in the company that have come about, directly or indirectly, as a result of Walter's efforts to build up Ford's image and reputation. There have been many. In truth, Walter has stuck a finger, if not his nose, into almost every aspect of our business, at one time or another, with or without invitation. <clears throat> Walter had a plan when he arrived to put a jaunty face, as he described it, on the company. One way or another, he would, one, make Ford more interesting to the buff magazines, two, raise our corporate visibility in the world of arts and culture, three, take accurate aim at special markets, and four, bring the company kicking and screaming, if necessary, 
back into motor racing in America. There was another expensive project of Walter's I'd like to mention, the Treasure Houses of Britain exhibition. It was a historic first in the world of art, bringing to America priceless works from great English country homes. That was an outstanding success and an achievement worthy of the highest accolades. Although money was in short supply, once again Walter persuaded us to make a big investment in our public image at a time when Ford's reputation was sagging. Treasure houses enhanced Ford's presence in Washington and our connections to culture beyond our wildest expectations. The museum director told me it took 64 books to hold all the clippings. And um, <clears throat> I can show you, uh, there's a, a, a wonderful photograph of the reception held to do with this exhibition at the British Embassy in Washington. And you can see Walter shaking hands with Princess Diana. And between them is an extremely happy Donald Peterson, who was chairman of Ford at the time. I will, uh, I will just say, uh, we're referring to some photographs. Uh, some of these photographs will appear on our website uh, to support this, uh, this podcast and in the social media. So please, uh, while you're listening to the podcast or outside the podcast, do dip onto amht.org.uk to see some of the photographs. Richard, carry on. Okay. So the final comment from Red Polling is marvellous. He, he ended his speech by saying, Walter, you've given us the impression all these years that the job has continued to be fun and you've helped to make it fun for all of your colleagues. For 27 years, you've done what needs doing with vision, panache and charm, a total disregard for the conventional wisdoms and a rather lofty but effective disdain for the rules. So it's, it's wonderful that such a serious company could actually... I was going to say, Except because this. Ford, you get the impression, very, very by the rules, very conservative, and here is this Englishman comes over just, just to shake it all up. Well, I mean, this is what Red Polling was acknowledging, so, yes. that, um, that... And they accepted it. Yes. Well, like, what was the first comment? It was something like, um, we were just not expecting... Not expecting him. Yeah, Ford was totally unprepared for Walter. Um, but the thing was, he, he didn't just walk in with wacky ideas. Um, you know, already he'd had some, some profoundly important ideas for Ford in Europe, such as the, the Lotus Cortina, the, the Cosworth Ford engine. So he had a track record. Um, but still, they were all very serious. Um, it was a serious company, employed a lot of people. It had lots of responsibilities around the world. Um, but... He was very persuasive. He was very thorough. He was very detailed. He, he didn't um, raise ideas until he'd really thought them through. I have an interesting example just coming up. So they learnt um, that, you know, he might surprise you. He might make you uncomfortable. Um, but it was always... But, but he, had, he had backup for it. He had evidence. Yes. He had supporting yeah. uh, documentation yeah. for it. I mean, they, they weren't... You might not agree, you might not want to do the ideas, but they were always worthy of consideration. Um, so, <clears throat> so Poling talked about uh, Walter's disdain for the rules. This is, um, these are a couple of paragraphs 
from speech that Ian Callum gave at the, at the Heritage Trust's Walter Hayes Memorial Lecture in January 2017. And, of course, Ian Callum is one of the world's greatest car designers. Um, after being head of design at TWR, he then became head of design at Jaguar and Aston Martin. Um, he's designed... Um, I wrote an article for Aston, the magazine. He's designed four and a half Astons, um, and he worked very closely with father and really enjoyed the experience and did a, a phenomenal job. Um, I think still today, in uh, you can see the heritage continuing the design that originated with the DB7. Oh, absolutely. I, th- I think it, the, the DB7 set the template. Yes. For, for, for where yeah. we are today. I mean, what Marek Reichen done is, is fantastic. And the cars are absolutely breathtaking. But there is a little bit of Ian, I think, there. Anyway, Ian, um, you know, I think what, what people wouldn't know is that the fight to save Aston Martin to really get Ford to invest and stay with the investment was really, as I suggested earlier, quite a bitter battle. There were lots of different sides, lots of discussions. And the difficulty for, for Walter was that he was in England and a lot was going on in Dearborn. And also there was Jaguar pitching in and trying to, to derail things for Aston Martin. Where do you think the, the inspiration came from uh, to buy, for Ford to buy Aston Martin? Was, was there a conversation with Victor at some point? Yes, yes. What had, hap- what had happened was that in 1987, there was a, a sort of historic rerun of the Mila Miglia. And um, it was not the wild open, fast and fantastic race dangerous um it was controlled but it was a very important event and uh walter was back in europe as the chairman of ford of europe and he went to stay i think it was casa maggiore which had been a a base for aston martin in the past and he met uh, he met prince michael and victor gauntlet and um victor gauntlet told walter um, that Aston Martin was very much at the stage where it needed help um, financially and it didn't have the designers and engineers, it didn't have the, the, the building, you know, the factories, the, didn't have the sites or the space to fund, create and then build. It wasn't just financial, which always seems to be a recurring theme of Aston Martin, but... Uh, beyond that, it, it just didn't seem to have the resources anyway. No much how, how much money was thrown at it. Really. Yeah, exactly. It didn't. It to, didn't to achieve have. anything in the timescale it had to. Yes, it, it didn't have, you know, the the design and engineering staff it needed. Didn't have the manufacturing facilities. Um, they were doing very well with with in the best way that they could, but they couldn't. You know, the world was changing. Sales were were dropping, and. Um, so, uh, it was a struggle. So, um, so this. So my father thought about it, um, and he um, had he had a very close personal uh, relationship with Henry Ford. They, I mean, it began as a professional one and, and continued, but um, 
<clears throat> Henry Ford had drawn him into various family issues for support and guidance. And um, he was a big Anglophile. He had a house, fantastic house, um, called Turville Grange, which is at Turville Heath, just outside Henley. And um, they would meet on weekends sometimes in England. Um, and it happened that um, Henry had driven to Shepperton um, shortly after my parents had returned from, from this Mila Media retrospective. And he asked them what they'd been doing. And they said, well, we've been to this event and it's magnificent. And oh, by the way, <clears throat> Aston Martin, you know, Father, uh, Walter said, I think we should really consider buying it. And that was the beginning. Um, that was the origin. Um, I think that uh, Henry had also spoken to Peter Levanos, who was a, you know, a part owner, who had shared the same thoughts. And um, so <clears throat> what happened was that Henry had retired from Ford, but was still an eminence grise. And he said to Walter, I want you to, to put together a paper for, for the chairman of Ford and the board and, um, and do it quickly. So that's what happened. He, um, he put together a history of Aston Martin, some of the financials, and, and made a very serious proposal. And actually, I think the proposal uh, or was submitted to to Ford in July of 87. And by September, an agreement had been reached to buy, I think it was 75%. So they moved fast. Uh, Henry Ford was very influential in this. And the timing was good because, um, unfortunately, Henry Ford became very ill in, in September and he died in October. Um, but anyway, so to go back to Ian and to pick, Ian picked up on what Red Poling had mentioned, which was Walter's disdain for the rules. Ian said at the lecture that Walter worked tirelessly in Detroit, going over there, selling the idea, saying we've got to build this. This was about January 93. And Walter came in one day and said, we're going to Geneva, the Geneva Motor Show. I said, that's in March. He said, yeah, yeah, we'll get one of the first cars. And Ian said to him, but you haven't got full approval from Ford yet, have you? And he said, don't you worry about that. So Ian said, I didn't worry. We turned up at Geneva with the car, and it wasn't actually signed off by Ford. So what had happened was um, that... Walter had decided to apply force majeure to the project. There was a lot of backwards and forwards and hesitations and delays, and he just thought, I know this car is wonderful, we've gone so far with it, and I'm just going to resolve this the way I want to. So, so he wasn't being reckless there, he just had a gut instinct that this would work. Well, it depends who you are. Yeah. Um, I would say to a great number of people he was being reckless because he didn't have program approval and i mean ford you know like any serious company had its methods and approaches to things and you know you didn't just go ahead yeah. and do stuff like that um he told me 
that when he got back to Newport Pagnell after Geneva, um, there was a very long line of phone calls and messages. Um, you know the abbreviation WTF? Yes. Well, that was the, the theme. Um, and he told me uh, that he had called... I, I can't... Sorry to say, I can't remember who. Someone right at the top and just said, oh, I'm so sorry. I got ahead of myself. But... Um, you know, the great thing is we were sort of given car of the show. It couldn't have gone better. We got fantastic publicity. So if you'll pardon the procedural error, shall we just continue? Um, so, so Ian said, Walter was shrewd, bloody shrewd. But of course, the DB7 got so much attention. And in fact, he took orders, which they were kind of thrust mm. upon Aston Martin. Mm. They didn't arrive literally with an order book, but they received orders. And Ian said he got orders written out, and after that, the rest is history. He went back to Detroit, he got the papers signed, and off he went into production with the Aston Martin DB7. But at that point, he said to me, we're going to call it the DB7. He spoke to David Brown, and he said, can we use your name, the DB Letters? David Brown gave it his blessing, and so the car became DB7. So Forever de marketeer. Yes. Well, I think the thing was, he, um, you know, the, the DB name hadn't, nomenclature hadn't been used for a long time. Mm. And, and, you know, Walter had a great appreciation for history and style and culture. And, I mean, the Aston Martin's a remarkable name. It means such fantastic things to so many people, even people who don't really know much about the car. Um, but he knew there was a look and a style and a presence that he wanted to, to resurrect. Mm. And, of course, you can help resurrect it by calling it something that brings to mind all those kind of associations. So, um, <clears throat> there's one other um, last... A uh, couple of paragraphs I'll read, um, which also pick up on the themes from Red Pudding. This is from Harry Colton, who uh, was a former Ford of Britain press officer who worked with Walter for many years, Brentwood, and then Father uh, brought him to, to Aston Martin, and he became the head of PR. And Harry uh, wrote in uh, an issue of Aston which was, of course, the Heritage Trust Journal, <clears throat> he wrote that working for Walter Hayes was never dull or uneventful, and for 99% of the time it was actually fun. His management style was intuitive and instinctive, yet it was his skill with people that set him apart from his contemporaries at Ford. And I think that sort of picks up on something you asked a short while ago, that um, he just didn't behave like a Ford mm. person. Um, uh, my mother told me once that he, there was a big Ford meeting in Las Vegas where Ford presented the new cars and discussed them with all the dealers. This was a big two or three day event. <clears throat> and it was very important, very formal, very structured. And um, a lot of the kind of 
necessary but stiff speech as you'd expect. But when Walter got up to speak, he he cracked a joke. And um, it changed the atmosphere. And my, my mother said, a lot of people laughed. And Walter looked up and said, ah, not the kind of thing you're expecting from a Ford vice president. And... Um, he carried on in that way, and it, it all went very well. Anyway, Harry Carlton said, Walter's powers of persuasion were legendary. His joint presentation with engineering director Harley Kopp to gain approval for the Ford Formula One engine program was covered under any other business in the board meeting and took just nine minutes. Oh, that's incredible. As Walter stated afterwards, Ford had invested £1.25 million to add a synchromesh first gear to the Cortina, while for just £100,000, they got world championship-winning Formula 1 and Formula 2 engines. So, um, so if we just quickly go into... Uh, I had a couple of interesting things from journalism. He, um, we talked about sort of Walter's lateral thinking and ideas, and... Um, he had this idea in 1960 that it was the, the 25th anniversary of the abdication of Edward VIII. And um, Walter thought that much had been written about Edward VIII, uh, now the Duke of Windsor and the Duchess, but much had been written about them, but not by them. And he actually went um, to stay with them in their home, the mill in the Bois de Boulogne, in 1960, in July. And I have here the letter, um, which begins, Dear Mr. Hayes, and ends with kind regards, sincerely yours, Edward. And um, it's, it, it, and in it they say um, how much they, that they're returning the manuscript that they had worked on together with their, their amendments and corrections. Um, that they had very much uh, enjoyed his visit and the conversation and that they were interested in, in future, some kind of future um, collaboration, right, yes. other subjects. So that's quite, quite a thing. And then there's one other interesting thing, um, th- that there was a... Um, Walter had interesting ideas about commissioning people. And um, in, in October 1960, there was the famous trial in London uh, of Penguin Books for publishing Lady Chatterley's Lover. Yes. And the newspapers talked, you know, mentioned that there was a trial, and of course there had been reviews of the book. But... Um, the angle Walter chose was to send Evelyn War to write a review, not of the book, but of the trial. And um, they actually remained in contact for a year or so. And um, I do have here the first edition of the Evelyn War novel, Unconditional Surrender. And... Um, the inscription in the front says, For Walter Hayes, a premature Christmas present from Evelyn War, October 1961. So I don't think there are many people who worked in Detroit who had uh, 
such a background, um, which was interesting. Anyway, then um, to follow the idea of of commissions, I think we um, <clears throat> we mentioned before Colin Chapman, and um, Walter made him the uh, motoring editor of the Sunday Dispatch. And they were both very young. And um, Colin actually said to Walter, well, I'm really not a writer. And so, so, so hang on, he, he persuaded Colin Chapman, yeah. you're saying here, the founder of Lotus, to be the paper's motoring editor. Yes. Didn't know that. Yes. That's incredible. Yes. Well, I think... Um, I mean, I don't think that Colin went into the offices and sat there. Right. I, I think it, it was... The point was that, that Walter wanted someone he admired greatly, who he saw as a great up-and-coming engineer or designer. Um, he thought it would add prestige to the newspaper and articles of great interest. And essentially, they, they came up with, um, together, ideas for the articles that then um, Colin would discuss and Father would write. But what happened was that between June 1958 and July 1959, um, there were 39 articles published under the Colin Chapman byline. I'd heard about this quite a few times, but I actually managed uh, to go online and Google, and I found a newspaper archive, and I found... The articles, um, and there were two that were kind of um, interesting to me in particular. Um, they covered a sort of eclectic range of subjects. In December the fourteenth, nineteen fifty-eight, the headline of Chapman's article was "Safety belts are a must in your car." And um, of course, this was twenty-five years before they became a legal requirement in the UK. And there was another headline that caught my eye, which was May the 3rd, 1959, which was New Aston Martin challenges the best in the world. And um, I thought, well, that could just as well apply to the 1993 unveiling of the DB7 in Geneva. So um, so if we follow that um, trail, um, to, to go, I have here some letters from, from Colin Chapman, which raise interesting things that I have not uh, read myself. I mean, I can't claim to be the world's greatest you know, authority on what has and hasn't been written about, but I think these letters will be of interest to the people listening. Um, so Colin and Walter had a nice relationship, and when, and when Walter went to Ford... Uh, Ford's reputation was not good. The sales were not good, and the cars, the image wasn't good, and the cars were not particularly good. And um, the head of Ford of Britain was called Sir Patrick Hennessy, and he was a friend of Lord Beaverbrook, and they had met, and Hennessy had said he was looking for someone to come and be in charge of public affairs and really give them, you know, a tonic, a boost. And Lord Beaverbrook had recommended... Walter, which is... That's fascinating, because I was always wondering about the, the leap from, from the Daily Mail to Director of Public Affairs. Yes. And, and that's what happened. That was the connection. So Beaverbrook introduced Walter to Sir Patrick Hennessy, and they, they took to each other, and um, 
he got the job. And the, the idea was we have to do what we can to, not only to improve the image, but to improve the cars. And um, so Walter thought, well, you know, racing improves the breed. Everybody knew about that. And, and of course, perfect. He was on very good terms, very close to Colin Jackman. So they met. And um, the big new car that Ford was working on was the Cortina. And, and Chapman and Keith Duckworth had been working on the Anglia engine for use by Lotus. So they met and Walter said, well, you know, we've, we've done articles in the past, but we haven't done the real thing, so let's do it. So I think um, it's true that Walter suggested the Lotus Cortina. And, um, and the idea was that it would be engineered, re-engineered, mildly redesigned by Lotus and built by Lotus. Um, and I think originally it wasn't called the Lotus Cortina. It was going to be the Ford Cortina mm. by Lotus, or something very close to that. But over time, it changed, and, and I think that was a very good thing. I um, think so. I, I, can't, I can't imagine uh, Ford at the time being uh, receptive to having their Cortina hijacked by another, another brand, if you'd like. But, yes. Uh, in hindsight, yes. it turned to be the right decision. Well, I think this would have been one of the very first times that sort of Walter went up against Ford business hierarchy and the way they do things. And um, Well, they had to change because it was a relatively quiet, conservative company and they brought Walter in to shake things up. Yes. So you couldn't carry on doing the same thing. Yes. But still, you have to be willing to take a risk... Um, but I think every, uh, Walter recognised, and I don't think it took much persuasion to get other people to agree that Colin Chapman was fantastic and Duckworth was fantastic, and bringing them in to help Ford um, was was a very, very, you know, clever and worthwhile move. This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Gary Taylor. Please join us again for the second part of this podcast in episode 14 for further revelations and insight from the personal archive of Walter Hayes. We'll also find out how the Cortina came to be driven down a toboggan run by Jim Clark and Henry Taylor and Walter and Colin Chapman's negotiations to persuade Graham Hill to join Team Lotus in 1967 and how later they proposed to encourage Hill to retire. <laughs>